Good morning again. It's good to see you. You probably noticed up there on the screens that uh, this morning uh, we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of First John. I'm super excited for this. And uh, if you're wondering why we finished uh, our study in Mark, the book of Mark, the way we did, a letter was sent out to you yesterday um, via email for this reason. I've listed some sources in that email. Uh, hopefully those resources were um, helpful to you. I'd like to shepherd you through this, train and equip you to be students of God's Word. Um, if you're interested and have not yet read the email or looked through the resources, please do. And if you aren't signed up for those weekly email blasts or our church email list, uh, you can fill out a connect card in the foyer there and uh, get connected and receive all the information you should. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to get started. I'll invite you to pray with me. Lord, I believe um, that we've gathered here by faith and that's because we need you and you don't hold yourself back from your people who confess their need for you. And so I make a confession on behalf of our con congregation, we need you. Whether we feel it or not, we still need you. And thank you that you're merciful to give us Christ, his salvation, your spirit, which works to produce life change in your word. And so use your word this morning, O oh Lord, to bless us and transform our lives. We want a heavenly perspective. We want purpose and meaning. And we need to be reminded of the gospel. And so use your scriptures this morning to do so. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, this morning as uh, we begin our new series together, I'd like to uh, start off um, by asking you one question, uh, one question to help us um, launch off into this book of 1 John, this study, and that question is this. How does a church stay a church? And after hearing or, or reading this question, you might be thinking to yourself, James, what the heck does that even mean? Um, and if you look there, you'll see that from the way, the, the way that this question is written or asked, there is an underlying assumption that a church exists, or as a church exists, it possesses the potential for it one day to no longer be a church. And that is exactly right. In other words, a church can start off with holy practices, holy intentions, right beliefs, right emphasis, but for a million and one reasons and our circumstances can end up wandering away from God and the true gospel that was given for it to exist and strive towards. And so this morning, as we talk about this idea, what I first want to say um, is that I'm not going to stand up here on the stage to judge or condemn any church, and uh, nor am I going to um, act like we here at Parkview Church have it all, all together. But rather, what I want to do through God's Word this morning is reveal to us what I believe the Bible gives us as both a warning and a gift of grace. In order for churches, evangelical churches, faith-filled, Christ-centered churches to remain united together in Christ, holding fast to our confession in God and the gospel. And so I want to take this message and apply it directly to this particularized local church body, Parkview. 
uh, this idea that um, I'm speaking to you of here this morning in many ways is actually why this book of 1 John was written uh, for the first church to stay the church in a season of confusion and doubt for it not to be led astray by false teaching or division, but rather for it to rest assured of salvation in Christ alone and hold fast to what is true Christian life and faith. And so this morning, we're going to dive into this series, and it is my intention to start here, show you these things here in this sermon, and then for the rest of the book, continue to unveil them. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn it on or open. We're going to be in the book of 1 John, chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 4. And you see there up on the screens, I've titled this sermon this morning, How Does the Church Stay the Church? Three things I'd like to show us in our time together are this. Number one. A church stays a church by keeping God's word supreme. Number two, a church stays a church by being in relationship with one another. And number three, a church stays a church by communing with God through Christ alone. By keeping God's word supreme, by staying or being in relationship with one another and communing with God through his son Jesus Christ. We're going to begin our time together up front by reading the text, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Right now we're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you the supremacy of the word. Well, uh, as we begin to look at the text here, what I'd like to do um, is start off by introducing you to a little bit more of this book's context. It's uh, largely agreed upon by scholars that the author here is John, the son of Zebedee. And if you're wondering who that is, uh, that's the man who wrote the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is him. And uh, John, as being one of the 12 disciples, was a core member of Jesus' ministry and inner circle during his life and time here on earth. And uh, John here is actually writing to the church uh, that he attended shortly after his first gospel was written. There um, are many books in the the New Testament that we uh, call epistles or letters, This book here that we're looking at this morning is actually not one of those. Why? Well, because epistles contain personal addresses and greetings and closings. But if you look here, John doesn't actually have any of these. Here we have a different writing style before us. And that's because John's purpose for this book was not for it to be a personal letter addressed to one person. Rather, he meant for it to be a sermon to the church which after being preached to his church would then circulate in and around other churches in the area for them to hear as well. And uh, the reason why John wrote this sermon was to address a certain situation that originated within the doors of the establishment. 
What had happened during this time was that there had been a group of people inside the church who had taken upon themselves certain false beliefs about the person and work of Jesus. And these beliefs included a denial that Jesus was a Messiah and also that his death was not necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Those are big no-nos, as you know. Absolutely crucial and critical to our faith. Necessary. It's essential that we believe those. And so this sharp disagreement arose in the church, resulting in church division and also a big split. And uh, the church um, split created confusion amongst its members, especially confusion amongst those who longed to remain loyal to the gospel, the true believers in the church. They were beginning to question whether or not they really knew God and whether or not they were really were experiencing true and eternal life. And so John here is, is, is writing to provide believers strength and assurance by reminding them of the gospel which they had received from the beginning and also by giving them a list of criteria that they could use to evaluate false claims and rest assured that they were in the light. And so if you look there in verses 1 and 2, this is, this is what he's doing. One of the most repeated words that you'll notice there is the word we. John uses it seven times in this short text. The word we is a plural pronoun, which is a reference to a group of people that he himself belonged to, and this reference is to him and the rest of the apostles. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, we have seen it, testify it, and proclaim to you. The first thing that John is doing as he is opening up this sermon to grab hold of this church's heart and mind and call them to the gospel is appeal to his apostleship. Um, when I first moved down here, I was working um, out at the Lilburn Fitness Center across the street from Publix on uh, Five Forks. And uh, it was my first year here at the church. I was trying to make as many friends as possible and make as many invites to gather a number at the church. And um, after one of my workouts, I left. I was all sweaty. I was heading to the car, and I met this lady. One thing led to another. Uh, we got to talking. And uh, I'll never forget one of the first words or some of the first words that came out of her mouth after she heard that I was a pastor. I said, hey, my name is uh, Pastor James. And she said, oh, Pastor James, it's so nice to meet you. Um, my name is Apostle so-and-so. And I was like, Whoa. All right, um, this is not going to work. I didn't, say, I didn't say that to her, but you know, I was feeling all of those things. Um, why was I feeling that way? Because John here is showing us who apostles are and what their role was as such in the New Testament church's existence. According to the Bible, apostles are people who literally and physically were eyewitnesses to Christ who then had been called by Christ personally and sent to the church to exercise authority over it and provide for it what is true Christian doctrine. That's why that lady freaked me out. That doesn't exist anymore. We have this thing um, that circulates in the faith called the Apostle Creed. The Apostles' Creed, many of you have probably heard it before. For those of you who've never have read it or heard it read aloud, this is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father, 
the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Take note of those two asterisk stars there. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Those two asterisks there are next to the word Catholic because that word Catholic there does not represent the Roman Catholic Church, but rather the church of all times and all places historically. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, creed. And uh, the reason why we have it is not because this creed was produced by the apostles themselves, but rather because it contains a brief summary of the apostles' teaching as we find it in the Scriptures. And so what the early church did was look at the writings of the New Testament and set forth Christian doctrine simply and succinctly in order to preserve what is true biblical orthodoxy and our historical faith. And so this is what John is doing with this church. He is defending his apostleship. And, and with it, you'll notice that he is fighting for nothing else but Christ. If you look there in verse 1, he uses this, this phrase, word of life which is actually very similar to the language that he used in his first gospel in his opening. Do you remember what John chapter 1, verse 1 said? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of life that John is talking about here is a reference to none other than Christ himself and the good news of the gospel. John begins this document by appealing to his apostleship for the purpose of validating Christ alone. He's, like, he's, he's saying to the church, hey church, listen to me. I ate with Christ. I drank with Christ. I slept next to Christ. I traveled and lived with Christ. Thus, I was able to see like no one else ever in history, life eternal and embodied. Therefore, my teaching, my gospel are trustworthy and true. My credentials are trustworthy and true. What we learn through John's writings here as readers is that Christianity began by God's revelation of himself in Jesus, and it continued by the authoritative testimony and teaching of the apostles. In fact, it is through Christ and the apostles' teaching that you and I are able to see and make sense of most clearly the rest of Scripture. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them they have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. In other words, all of the teachings of the Old and New Testament point to Jesus, and it is through the writings of the new, that we are able to make sense of the old. This is why we're able to value as of equal importance both testimony, testaments as holy and inspired by God. This is why here at our church, we always seek to keep 
God's word and the gospel supreme. Our goal in whatever text that we as a church are in is to show Jesus Christ as the central figure. And so we long for Christ-centered teaching. We long for Christ-centered preaching. We long for Christ-centered songs. We long for a Christ-centered liturgy that is a flow of service that elevates God's word and seeks to incorporate it in all of our time together as much as we can. This is our, this is our gospel longings. And I'm going to admit something as a pastor. Um, personally, let me just say that it's just so easy for me to give in to the temptation and be insecure when the sermon is long and the liturgy is dense. Why? Because I know there is better ways that you are entertained. I'm speaking from a worldly sense. Last week on Easter, we had over 250 people in this room. And I'm just going to confess that I long to be more casual, more engaging, more animated, more expressive. I wanted my stories to be more fancy, my illustrations to be more grabbing. But guess what? There's no hope in that. The Holy Spirit wouldn't allow me to. Why? Because I believe it's best for you to hear the word of God preached above and beyond all else. The word of God in the sermon, read aloud, is the most powerful part of our time together. In other words, all of God's power and work and ministry by and through his spirit in partnership with his word is where the true life change comes from. And so I ask you in light of this big agenda, the supremacy of God's word for us as Christians who believe, is this the way that you think about scripture in our time together? The Bible. When you come here on Sunday morning, is this the thing that you hunger and thirst after the most? And um, I move on from that question and ask you this. How about in your own personal life? Does the supremacy of the word actually reign supreme? In other words, what role does the Bible play in your faith walk with God? Do you love it? Do you long for it? Do you desire it? Is it your life? Do you eat it like bread? Do you bury your face in it? Do you find God there? Above and beyond all else is God's word the most important thing to you as you seek to follow the Savior? Or, um, or does it uh, uh, sit there on your nightstand and gather dust? Or um, is it passed by, overlooked, or undervalued, misprioritized, not thought of as the most powerful means to communing with God? I don't say this as a law for you to read your Bible. I say this as gospel, as an invitation to a gift. The word of God is the way that we find meat and fellowship with the Savior. Do you read your Bible? It's not a, a, a question of condemnation. Is it an invitation to find the treasure of life? Uh, Christians are not able to live as Christians without feasting on the bread of life 
in the word. You see, the apostles' teaching, indeed, all the scriptures were given to us as gift from God because in them we find Christ and the words of eternal life. Psalm chapter 19. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. The law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord, the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord are radiant. The decrees of the Lord are firm. They are more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. My brother and sisters, I ask you again as we bring point number one to a close, do you love the word? Yeah, that was point number one. A church stays a church by keeping the word supreme. I'd like to now move to point number two and show you the importance of being in relationship with each other. If you look there past verses one and two to verse three, um, what you'll see there is, is how John is, is now bringing us to this idea of fellowship. He says this. That which we have seen and heard, we reap proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And so from this church split, what had happened was that the congregation inside of it was broken and divided into two. Some people stayed at the church and other people left. And uh, those who chose to remain found themselves in a state of confusion, found themselves revisiting their salvation and entire belief system. And, um, I'm just going to say that this is what often happens um, when people experience church hurt, division, or splits. Um, There are wounds which happen inside the heart, um, which inevitably affect faith. And that's because the thing that was supposed to be treated most gently and honorably in the context of God, where your heart was prone to trust, ends up getting betrayed or mistreated. And I want to weep with you for those of you who've been hurt in church or hurt by leaders or failed stories. It's not the way it's supposed to be. If you're here and um, that's you, uh, thanks for taking a risk. Thanks for trusting God and coming to our church. Uh, what I want for us to see here in this text is that John in this uh, church split is not reminding the church only of doctrines to believe in, but here he's also giving them a people to participate with. In other words, um, here he is practically paving a pathway in which their faith can be rediscovered, rediscovered and tended to. Here he helps us see that it is fellowship with the apostles themselves. Why? Because it is in and through life lived together with other Christians where you and I are able to know the love, mercy, and grace of God through Jesus Christ. In layman's terms, what I'm trying to say is that individual Christianity doesn't work. Uh, Church hopping doesn't work. Faith in God while remaining autonomous from his people falls far short. You know, I get it. You know, like, 
Like the last thing that you and I want to do after being hurt by a church or experiencing a wound is stay committed to church community. But this is what John is, is encouraging them to do. This is why Jesus is everything to the church. Why? Because I'm not perfect. Because you're not perfect. We all have a broken story. We all bring baggage into this place. We all have wounds. We all have imperfections, sinful effects uh, that have influenced our personality. But Christ, in all of his grace, keeps us up and holds us together. Jesus is the only reason why we continue to show up to this place. Let me just say something to you um, who um, know this to be true. And maybe to you who are thinking about in, engaging in our church community, the longer that you're a Christian, the more you'll see not just your sin, but the sin of others and experience that. And if you're not careful with a Christ-centered anticipation and expectation that is real, you could be wounded and driven into isolationism. Um, perfection is not the reason why we come to this church. We come to this church to experience Christ and it is his grace and his forgiveness and mercy that holds us and keeps us together and makes us to be vulnerable and go on a limb and trust one another. The longer that we follow Jesus and are a part of his body inside the church, the more beautiful Jesus becomes because we see what those great lengths and measures he actually went to to die, forgive our sin, and call this entire church as messed up and, 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 and out of position and, and imperfect as we are, beautiful. He calls us beautiful. Jesus is the perfect pastor of this church. He's the reason why we continue to show up here. I was uh, eating dinner with my family not too long ago. My son Hudson sits right alongside of me on my right-hand side. And uh, this little stinker is a really picky eater. He uh, loves chicken fingers and fruit snacks. If he can have that the, the rest of his life, every day, he'd be the happiest little boy in the world. But because he's so picky, uh, Lizzie and I, we have this rule in our house. And the rule is this. Before you say you don't like the food that is on the table, you have to at least try it. <clears throat> But Huddy's stubborn, so he won't pick up the fork and do it. I pick up the fork for him, stabbed the food, brought it to his mouth. The other day, I said, Huddy, open up wide, buddy. He reluctantly opened his mouth. He went to bite on it, just with his teeth, never touched it with his tongue, and said, I don't like it. <laughs> I said, buddy, it didn't even touch your tongue. You don't even know what it tastes like. Before he even tried it, he started to believe in his mind what it tastes like, and so he avoided it. And I make this story illustration because this is what many people do with the church. They think it knows what it tastes like. They, they think they know what it's actually like, so they never actually bite in and give it a chance. And I'm saying the gospel is here. Not perfection. Christ is here. And he is a delicious good. Forgiveness is a delicious good. Grace is a delicious good. When you and I gather at community groups and Bible studies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as such different people with different stories, honestly, let's be honest, we're not hanging out outside of Christ, outside of this church. We really got nothing in common. But Jesus holds us together and the gospel then becomes a delicious good. 
um, there are two dimensions to salvation. There's a horizontal and a vertical dimension. The first is vertical. That relates to our relationship with God. It goes this way. But there is also a horizontal dimension to our salvation, which is a reference to our um, relationship with one another. In other words, through the gospel, what we see is that Christ not only died to restore fellowship between us and God, but he also died to gather, redeem, and restore a people who are called to know him above and beyond all else in the context of covenant community within the doors of the church. One man named James Montgomery Boyce said this, The purpose of this great gospel plan for the revelation of himself to men and for their salvation is fellowship. And that on a horizontal level. How then can believers be content with that which hinders their fellowship? Or how can they be content with an evangelism that wins men to God but fails to draw them into a vital, invisible relationship with one another in the church? Acts chapter 2.42, you know it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and the Lord added to their number daily. This is why we have limited programs. This is why you have to wait in, uh, to become a member for a period of time so you can get to know us. This is why people here at this church chase you down if you're new and might even seem weird, but they chase you down to the parking lot if you weren't touched. Why? That was supposed to be funny. Um, <laughs> Because we desire to know each other. Like the gospel has given us mutual affection for one another. Like we really want to know you and we want you to know us so Christ could be known. Jesus is the goal. And relationship in the church is the only way that God has designed for it to happen. We want our kids to play together throughout the week. We want to text and encourage one another in group texts and phone calls and time together. Have dinner together. Meet each other at the playground encourage one another, find out where we're struggling with faith and say, you got this, God's got this. We're a family. People are hungry for family. Come be part of the family. Um, if you're new here, what we have to offer you is people. I just want to say it one more time. If you're new here, uh, what we have to offer you is people. And uh, if you're not new here, maybe you've been coming here longer than I have, I'm saying God is calling you to this, to people. Amen? That was point number two, being in relationship with another. I'd like to finish our time together by showing you, lastly, this great gospel point. And that is a church stays a church by um, staying in relationship. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, communing with God through Jesus Christ. As um, we finish up here, the last thing I want to show you is uh, John's Christ-centered um, desire for the church. If you look there in verse three, he says this, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. At first, it looks like John is being selfish. He has selfish ambitions. He's writing for himself that his own joy may be complete. But if we actually take time to consider his message thus far, what we recognize is that this intention here is the furthest thing from selfish as possible. In fact, what John is doing is helping us see that he is most filled with joy when the church worships and knows and loves God through prioritizing his word and through knowing and loving each other. That's what these two first points ultimately 
end in. They are a means to the end, and the end is God. You see, Bible reading and church community are not the goal. The goal is God. That God would be the end-all, be-all at the church. And uh, the Gnostics here of the day were um, the people who caused this church division. They were this group of intellectual elites. And what they were doing with their false gospel was um, promoting a system of beliefs and practices without the true Christ. But we know that um, religious beliefs and practices alone don't have power to save, give life, or transform. We know that it is Christ alone who saves, who transforms. Christ alone who is the creator and sustainer and maker of all things. That is Jesus alone who gives life to his people and provides intimacy and knowledge of God the Father. You see, this is what our church is supposed to be, a church that has intimate fellowship and knowledge of God. And um, I'll also say that uh, it's actually possible to look good, to sound good, for uh, me to preach the gospel here on Sunday mornings and for you to be involved in church, for, and yet our church still to miss the mark. How? By failing to be connected with the vine and having intimacy with God outside of these church doors. Do you know that verse? Unless the Lord builds the house, the labors labor in vain. Like my elders can elder without actually knowing God doing the work of ministry. And the deacons can do the same. And community group leaders and Bible study leaders can do the same. We can serve God and make this place look and sound like as much gospel as we can. But if we are not connected to the vine, intimately fellowshiping with God on the daily, habitually, regularly, burying ourselves in scriptures and practicing the discipline of reading the word and loving God through prayer, knowing his Holy Spirit that brings our souls to life, we can do this and it can all be in vain. And I don't want a church, and I know that you don't want a church that grows in number and seats sat with butts, but it actually means nothing. I don't want that. Do you want that? That's a waste of time. We want Christ to be known. And so we strive after great gospel marks in the fruit of our ministries, but we know that it will not happen if you and I outside of these church doors are not burying our head in the scriptures and loving and fellowshipping and knowing God alone and away with him. And this is what Jesus Christ did for us, my brothers and sisters. This is why John starts off this book with Christ, the word of life. Christ gave us intimate access to God, the father. The veil was torn. And so now you and I, any time throughout this week, any time in our life, high or low, have intimate access with God the Father where we stand before him, not naked, not shamed, but guiltless, washed and cleaned by his blood. That's why Christ is the star of the show here. You see, J.I. Packer said this, you see, when Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work and Christian interests, Christian acquaintances, the state of the church, problems of theology, but rarely of their daily experience with God. Modern Christian books and magazines contain much about Christian doctrine, standards, problems, conduct, techniques, Christian service, 
but little about the inner realities of fellowship with God. Our sermons contain much sound doctrine, but little relating to the converse between the soul and the Savior. My brothers and sisters, what I'm offering you and what we are seeking to strive after here at this church is fellowship with the Savior. Jesus has provided access to the Father, and now we as a church get to know God. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Just want to know you. Just want to see your face beautiful. Forgive us from going through the motions or thinking that our routines without you can be effective. We want you. You called us. You're the one who bought spiritual rebirth to our souls. You're the prize of our heart. And so recapture our love and affection for Christ so that when we come here, this place can be delicious and people who come to observe would want to bite in. We need you. Thank you for always giving yourself to us. We pray in your name. Amen.